Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Hey everybody, it's your bruiser bodyguard, Holden McNeely, and I'll crush your fucking skull, man. And it's me, your pill-popping, depressive, manic, PTSD'd, super science failure looming figure of my greatest generation era scumbag abusive father, Wizard Jake, how you doing? Ignore me! Ah, uh, so, Mekashiva, Mekashiva, Mekashiva! <laughs> And today we are talking about the Venture Brothers, and this is a Patreon-sponsored episode coming in from Anna. Anna, thank you so much for that, who says, uh, drop Discord, get Gilded. Gilded upgrades your group chat and equips your server with uh, integrated event calendars, roles, forums, streaming, and more. Sign up at gilded.gg. So there you go. Get that Gilded, guys. I don't even know what's going on. But thank you, Anna, for this uh, Patreon-sponsored episode. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, Jake, I'm scared. I was scared of this one because you know what? People really fucking love Venture Bros to the point where we've had a lot of people request this episode to the when that happens and it's something that's not necessarily something I'm obsessed with, uh, I get scared. Like True. a little turtle, I go into my shell, right? But especially because I do have a great respect for this property, even though I hadn't necessarily like gone through all the seasons and everything. I always enjoyed it when it was on. I remember going out to my buddy's apartment in Queens uh, early on uh, and living in New York. I'd never heard of Venture Bros. They threw it on. I was like laughing, dying laughing within minutes of watching this show. It had me immediately, which is why it shocks me that I never just sat down and actually watched it. I think maybe I was just like, it's too good. And it makes me hate comedy because no one will give me a TV show. Actually, it's probably exactly what it was. But still, (laughs) I have a great respect for this property and I hope we do it justice today. This show, the love for this show is narrow but deep. The uh, I think something about the way that the creators kind of align themselves, the way they write together, and the kind of just general cultural miasma that they kind of condense into this refined product uh, really just makes it sing to the exact audience that like is digging what they're throwing down. Because these are two guys, kind of Gen Xers, kind of taking everything about kind of um, like the American like mainstream male experience of kids that grew up in the seventies and eighties 
and filtering it through all of their like psychosexual issues and like insecurities. And I don't know how to say this. This is a show for masturbators. This is a show (laughs) for the people like the dudes that like are just they want to like they have this vision of masculinity that had been imposed on them in pop culture and by their uh, older generations and like the myriad of ways that they don't quite live up to it. And the myriads of ways that like the daring, bold adventures that they thought they'd been on uh, just weren't as gilded as they thought they were. And the ways that like their traumas kind of come back to haunt them and the sins mm-hmm. of the father and past is present is future kind of coalesces around each other with the like kind of like the intensity of two buddies like the kind of shit that like two creative friends will just get into when they're hanging out together the level of in jokes the weird voices the lore building the like nonsense references building this universe together between two people that I mean, if you're a nerdy dude, if you're a creative dude, you have definitely hung out with your one other friend in like their car driving for hours on end and like coming up with weird characters who each have like three hours of lore behind each one. It's like a very familiar kind of modality. Oh, God, I'm throwing out all these big, big time words. I love it. I love these big words. Patripulication. Is that a bit? Is that a real one? It sounds good. It sounds real good, though. (laughs) So behind this like very silly mosaic of like cartoons and comic books and comes like these deeper issues of like, you know, am I ready to be a father? Like, uh, am I too selfish? Like, you know, did my dad mess me up? And then like at the end of the day, also just like girls are scary and they got boobies. That's all like at a very core level. It's this 70s, 80s American male experience just kind of fully explored and fully fleshed out. And if you vibrate with what they're throwing down, this show feels like they know you in a way that other like comedy shows don't. And if that show doesn't vibe with you, you're just like, I don't get it. They're just horny and like Batman. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, you even mentioned in our study session on Sunday that you felt like this was almost, you were like, oh, this is like Wizard the Bruiser, the show, which I think is giving us a lot of credit, but it's more to say it is a comedy show that is just, hey, remember this? I remember this? Remember this? And it's all nerd shit. And there's even a quote that's buried in my notes that I'll get to later that is along the lines of like, we were on the cusp before nerds like took over pop culture, we were on the cusp of doing that. And I totally believe that. They were definitely on the cusp of a lot of things early on. They also just are the gateway of, of or, or they're like a sign of the maturity of Adult Swim in the sense that like Adult Swim was at its, you know, listen to that episode, but at the very beginning, it's Space Ghost, Sea Lab. They're just repurposing old Hanna-Barbera properties, this, that, and the other. And they were like, okay, what if we took the vibe of that stuff, but created our own epic world out of it and filled it with all these references to nostalgic nerd shit and and created this whole all these like character development and everything it was almost they like they just took what they were doing and and were like hey this is a johnny quest spoof but it's actually not a johnny quest spoof as mm-hmm. as we dig deeper into what it, the show is all about done by specifically two people too that is another big part of this whole story that it's literally why it, and why it took so long even just to get to a season seven and eventually a a canceled season eight and and why they had to take a break in the middle of season four because they totally just wore themselves out as the main two people creating this whole 
thing. Uh, so we've made it seven minutes and 20 seconds in. I think it's time for the synopsis. Venture Bros is an American adult animated TV series created by Christopher McCullough, a.k.a. Jackson Public. So if I say Christopher McCullough, and then, then at other times if I say uh, Jackson Public, it's the same guy. It was done for Adult Swim, which premiered in 2004 and ran for seven seasons with 81 episodes and four specials. Uh, and it was co-written with Doc Hammer, I should say, his partner. The series was originally conceived as a satire of boy adventurer and space age fiction prevalent in the early 60s and centers around the Venture family and the family's self-proclaimed arch nemesis, the Monarch. Uh, so, yeah, that about sums it up. I think to start, we should talk about this man, Christopher McCullough, a.k.a. Jackson Public. Mm -hmm. uh, as much as we can, I don't have a ton on his early life. Growing up, he had parents that encouraged creativity. He lived in a house full of movies and music and other influences, and he claims that his brother is the one who taught him how to draw. He was also really into comic books and things like that, up to the point he ends up working in a comic book shop in his hometown, and he wrote comic stories in his spare time, and eventually his employer published a comic of his called Cement Shoes, which was a superhero spoof. And his first foray and everything, very tick-like, which is why he ends up catching the eye of the creator of the tick. But I have the synopsis of Cement Shoes, and it goes as such. Crime has seeped into the fabric of generic city. Things are going downhill fast, but the final straw is broken when the mayor announces he is, in fact, a giant water bug. Now a victim of crime is sparked into action, none other than that incredible hero, Cement Shoes. While accidentally interrupting a drug deal, our hero was dumped into the ocean wearing concrete up to his knees. He's sa saved by a passing tuna boat. Surgeons were unable to do more than chip his new leg covering in half, giving him a really hip pair of boots with which to fight crime. So this catches the eye of Ben Edlund, who created the character The Tick. And he felt this was a great, uh, a great similar style approach. I mean, Jake, how would you best describe The Tick? An episode we should do eventually. We should do it. But The Tick really was like one of the breakout indie satirical superhero comics. Like it feels like, you know, around that time in the 80s and uh, 90s that everyone kind of like had some black and white, like uh, more like Pooperman. But The Tick <laughs> like hit into something like kind of. Uh, at once making fun of the excesses of like 90s overbuilt, like crazy strong heroes and the kind of do-gooder aspect and introducing all these kind of, um, you know, workaday reality aspects of being a superhero. And uh, definitely, I think I actually read some of these Tick uh, side, side project comics written by McCullough without having even realized at the time. Oh, really? Because... Yeah, they were like, highly independently published. There was very, like, I couldn't quite figure out which series was which. I was very young at the time. So I was never sure what version of the tick I was actually reading. But, um, you know, this was a one, this was one of those big, like, indie comic hits. Same as Ninja Turtles. This was kind of the big uh, mining season for indie comics as big uh, animation toy properties. So the fact that, like, uh, this very happenstance thing where, uh, you know, a Rutgers student got picked up by a uh, to collaborate with this indie comics artist that happened to be on the cusp of getting his animated series like order was very fortuitous for McCullough because it kind of 
brought him into the world of animation production and screenwriting, which definitely gave him a leg up with uh, other people. You know, it kind of got his foot. It got his foot in the door is what I'm trying yeah. to say. And with with Edlin, he ends up writing the miniseries Tick Karma Tornado, which has the clumsy superhero going off to compete in an interplanetary sports contest, which turns into a parody of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. I enjoyed the cover art of these. It seems like a lot of fun. He refers to Edlin as his mentor, who, quote, all but taught me how to write and continues to collude with and inspire me. And he even is a part of the very early days of Venture Bros development. So uh, he's going to be working on the tick for a while while working on this Venture Brothers idea on the side. When Fox Broadcasting increased its episode order for the tick animated series, Edlin was hired as a staff writer and storyboard artist. In either 96 or 97, Public Doodles, an image of, I'm sorry, uh, Public is hired as staff writer and storyboard artist. In either 96 or 97, Public Doodles, an image of two dorky kids. This was a quote from him. Two dorky kids because I'd been reading a Tom Swift book. And he does this on the back of a script for The Tick. Tom Swift is the main character of sci-fi and adventure novels who is a famous inventor in his fictional world and clearly a John, an inspiration for Johnny Quest. I never knew this until we researched this. But the uh, yeah, I remember picking up... Uh these these Swift books because uh, you know it it was around the time where you know you're reading Boxcar Children, Hardy Boys, all these mm-hmm. like classic young adult novels, and I picked up Tom Swift because it was supposed to be the more sci-fi super science one, and I was not into it. The character just seemed like a uh, wet potato, <laughs> but uh, McCullough definitely cowed onto something, which is the original Tom Swift novels were actually written like in the 1930s and like date back way earlier. And the books he was reading were about Tom Swift Jr., who had kind of like a 1960s renaissance with the advent of like the young adult, uh, you know, published novel. And so the idea that like you're having these own like crazy adventures in the shadow of your dad, who also went on crazy adventures really stuck with him. And that dynamic between like the older generation and the younger generation, like definitely gave, I think the venture brothers, this extra juice that just having a straight up Hardy boys parody would not have. And meanwhile, he's getting gaining major influence from Another person we honestly need to do an episode of eventually, Daniel Close, this in the indie comics world, known for Ghost World and David Boring, among other things. But he has this very retro style, this very like old advertising copy from the 60s almost style. Right. Like I, I can't it's, it's hard to best describe it. But other than that, it's a unique mix of like uh, Dan Close definitely captured the tension between the swinging modern space age vibe of the 1960s and the still very mundane reality of being a schmuck in the middle of Pittsburgh. Because everybody knows nothing's funnier than what people thought the near future looked like back in the 60s. I mean, right? Like, that's always the best. Like, we're going to have, you know, upside down floating cars. You know what I mean? And stuff like that. But you can, it's very obvious. Like, And I've been a fan of Chris McCullough's comics forever. Um, the uh, Monkey Suit uh, compilation, which mm. it's, well, I'm sh- well, is sure to come up we're uh, literally in a, in about a hot to talk. second. Yeah, yeah. We're just about to talk about that. I loved, and uh, I'd read it, all of those. And so I, it never even put two, two together that, like, the uh, pop culture pastiche, the uh, sad men with slumped postures and elongated physiques, 
like never even put those together that that was a clear uh, swipe, not a swipe, but you know, th- whatever the nicer version of a swipe is of McCullough of uh, Dan Klaus's style. And I will say, I was just about to say, McCullough then begins to draft out ideas for what would become the Venture Brothers sometime before the year 2000, initially conceived, though, as a short comic story for a comics anthology done by Monkey Suit Press. So actually, yeah, Jay, can you tell us a little bit about Monkey Suit? So uh, during my very heavy comic book ingestion, um, I think I was like, I don't know when the first one came out, but they were they came out like yearly or so, and they were... Uh, a comics anthology uh, helmed or at least organized by McCullough uh, with a lot of like veterans of the animation industry. So these were like storyboard artists and like all these professional illustrators that normally wouldn't be producing comics. And they published these anthology series and they were all really compelling. I cannot find scans of them. I cannot find them online. Um, But like each one had like, just really great styles. McCullough definitely dealt with uh, pop culture, sad pastiche. He had a superhero story. He had uh, another mystery story. It was interesting to see that Venture Brothers was uh, one for Monkey Suit that he just never got around to like completing and decided to make a show out of. At the time, under the pen name Dr. Hammer, Doc Hammer had these like crazy uh, kind of retro medical pamphlets that he published through the monkey suit uh, anthology. And in fact, I like them so much that I remember actually like sitting down with uh, Chris McCullough at uh, Mocha, which was a, which is a New York kind of indie comics festival. And I was like, uh, Hey, uh, like I really love a uh, monkey suit. Uh, by the way, they sh- aired this thing on adult swim uh, it really looked like your style. Was that you? And he was like, uh, yeah, you know, it was just a pilot. We don't know what the deal is yet. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I walked away. Like, <laughs> that That's my brush with destiny with this topic. <laughs> that's amazing. But it's a really, I st- if I had the wherewithal to go to my parents' garage where there's still a couple of boxes of old graphic novels, I probably could fish them out. But if you can get your hands on them, they are really engaging and really great. And so with all this going on, uh, he realizes pretty quickly that this his idea for this venture concept is going to be way too big for a monkey press short comic situation. So he ends up he writes a a first draft in the year 2000 while pitching around something else that didn't go. And uh, he's also working as a storyboard artist for Sheep in the Big City. This was the ninth Cartoon Network original, as well as uh, PB and J Otter, which ran on the Disney Channel. He's meeting a bunch of different animation people, uh, cartoonists, things like that. The Tick live action show actually is what moves McCullough to California. And it is in California where he meets Patrick Warburton, who is, of course, the voice of Brock, who is we're going to say more on him later. But either way, that's how they end up getting into contact via Patrick Warburton, of course, the voice of the tick and then eventually is the face of the tick in the live action show, which doesn't run. But just for one season, I remember when that came out, I had high hopes for that. Hey, but, very uh, high hopes. And now there's that Amazon series and nobody talks about it. <laughs> Uh, the Tick, so yeah, The Tick gets canceled. McCullough goes back to New York City. There he pitches a revised version of the Venture Brothers, but to Cartoon Network. It is turned down, though, so he hits up Jeff uh, uh, Noodle, Noodleman of Noodle Shop Production to help get the concept off the ground and eventually finds his way to Adult Swim. Now, this is back, though, 
before Adult Swim was on the map really at all. In fact, he had no idea that Adult Swim was a thing and never even considered pitching over to Cartoon Network because he felt that, like everyone else did, that they made stuff for a younger audience. You said, uh, I think it was Comedy Central who passed on it. Yes, Comedy Central passed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, in the Go Team Venture uh, making of book that uh, we should. We, yeah, we should definitely let's promo that now because a lot of this information is from that amazing book, the May Art and Making of Venture Bros. He uh, talked about how his initial plan was to like pitch it as one of those MTV kind of uh, freak show shows, and uh, you know, alongside stuff like The Head and. Um, the max and all these things. It was definitely up that alley. And by the time he had finished his like uh, pitch book, which is this lavishly illustrated kind of series Bible that he it looks had, great. It looks awesome. MTV had kind of stopped with that liquid television era. And so he tried comedy central and they kind of said no. And so uh, he was kind of just off in the wilderness. So the pilot was the rights. to The show was bought by Will Vinton Studios, who you know as the creator of the California Raisins like stop motion animation, they were uh, they did that creepy ass uh, Mark Twain death thing. That's like a weird creepy pasta. Oh, they and did... he wanted to make it a claymation thing. No, so we have to do an entire episode on this. But <laughs> Will Vinton, the who was this claymation pioneer. Wanted to be the next Pixar. He saw where mm. the where the tide was going and he invested millions of dollars in all this cutting edge tech and they bought the rights to the Venture Bros and they were kind of hands off with Chris McCullough. The studio completely collapses in a most spectacular fashion. Uh, yada, yada, yada. The studio is given to the son of the CEO of Nike because the CEO of Nike just bought them out and like gave it to his son who was interning for them. That company ends up becoming Leica, the creators of Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings and all these other, like, now legendary claymation. This deserves its own episode. The point is he gets the rights back because the California Raisins guy couldn't make it work. <laughs> so then Adult Swim ends up greenlighting the premise back in the summer of 2002. Production began on a revised pilot later that year. And the pilot first airs in February 16, 2003 with the first season airing starting in August 2004. I'm going to actually go like take a step back, though, and talk about the process really going into all of these things. But uh, either way, public says my, the same thing a lot of people say about working with Adult Swim, kind of the same thing people say about working with Netflix today. He said, we got to open things up a little more than some of those other shows. They're doing 11 minutes. They're sort of built as gag machines, and without them, we wouldn't exist. But we took it where we instinctively needed to go to keep it interesting for ourselves. Nobody ever told us we couldn't do it. It was only after doing it that we would take a step back and go, I don't think anybody else is doing this. So it's cool that Adult Swim just let us follow our own instincts. And maybe other people went, hey, we can do that. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. 
no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Now, uh, so let's introduce our co-pilot for Venture Bros, Doc Hammer. Mm. Doc is a mutual friend of Ben Edlund, the man who created The Tick. And they met at a party at Ben's house. And Public mentioned an idea he was working on, specifically the henchman and the capsule that accidentally gets stuck when it lands on the lid, which is a moment in the pilot, a very funny, tragic moment that really, I think, speaks for the whole series, or really at least that first season. Are we going to have to eat each other? (laughs) Forget that. What if we have to go (laughs) poo-poo? And honestly, the way they both tell it, Doc, Hammer, and Public, they hit it off immediately. I mean, I, I get it, too. I've been there, where you just meet someone and you're immediately speaking the same comic language. And actually, Doc Hammer, he's a musician and a painter. He's not even a writer. They just get along really well and just start sharing ideas with each other. Doc Hammer wasn't a, immediately a co-writer on the show. He actually ends up inviting uh, Public back in New York uh, because they his studio was close to where Public lived. And he was like, hey, we got an extra desk. Come on by, work on your thing. And he would come over there and just do work on stuff. And uh, they eventually just started collaborating. And Ben Edlund actually was there in the very beginning as well. And uh, Edlund ended up just happening to leave to work on other stuff. And so it just ended up being these two guys in the studio. And all of a sudden it was like, yeah, I guess this is it. This is the project. It It sounded like this natural forming of a collaboration, but it wasn't just like instantaneous. It was weird. It was just sort of this natural progression. The uh, first thing above everything else that got Doc Hammer in the fold was uh, he was just better at computer shit than public. So stuff like (laughs) uh, After Effects, uh, graphic design, uh, all uh, literally uh, the pilot packet, this, you know, this important series Bible was laid out in Quark. And Jackson needed someone to help him format it. And that's when Doc Hammer got in on the ground floor. Uh, by the way, R.I.P. Quark, uh, you know, mm. there's some the, true heads. No, uh, Adobe sucks, man. Quark heads for real. And uh, Doc was like on tour with his band. He gets back into town and McCullough, a.k.a. Jackson Public, was just like, hey, can you like help edit this flash <laughs> thing I'm doing, which ended up being the pilot? Again, so it's just this bizarre kind of right place, right time for the both of them. Oh, yeah, that's that's really actually an incredibly important thing is that uh, the pilot and even that first uh, season, they would get the they would hire out the animation first through, uh, yeah, Noodle Soup, which was a Flash studio. uh, And like the Flash studio itself did not have the ability to like format things for broadcast. They were like working on what, you know, annoying two minute website intros, which was the style at the time. Remember when you would go to a website and it would just play a flash movie for two minutes before you could enter it. That was noodle soup. Anyway, uh, getting it onto the right tape format, actually uh, importing all the footage so you can edit it in post, like all these things that were just so chaotic. uh, Doc Hammer was doing, just in his studio. There was no like big avid machine. There was no like editor. It was just these guys writing, getting this animation, you know, storyboarding and like just kind of making an honest to God animated TV show. Yeah. Not, and the way Adult Swim had kind of set it out, 
you know, these the 22 minute format was completely new. It's it felt like a whole different thing than just like whatever the weird like kind of motion tweening gags that uh, Adult Swim was doing or even flash animation. They were like kind of taking it, You know what it is? They took what was these burgeoning art forms of independent animation and actually making an honest to God TV show. Not mm-hmm. like a little web thing, not a little like basic cable like jaunt. They were making a real show by the skin of their teeth with just like their <laughs> with barely any resources. And and also content wise, like they didn't actually know what the show was. They were really making it up as it went along based off of a very loose concept by public. And Doc Hammer was just willing to go along with him on this because they spoke comedically the same language. Ben Edlund even left slightly for being frustrated with the project because he couldn't get McCullough to just plainly state what the show was going to be. It was like, what even is this? And he was like, I don't know. We're just trying to figure out. But it did start as a Johnny Quest spoof. Public said, I thought between Johnny Quest, Hardy Boys, and Tom Swift, what's up with these pie-eyed youths chasing pirates and international diamond thieves and stuff like that? They would get their throats cut the minute they stumbled upon a hideout. And so that was going to be the gag. I would do short comic stories and they would get their throats cut at the end. Uh, and Jackson Public, uh, or also McCullough, said, we were never set out, to, we never set out to make just a simple parody of Johnny Quest, but I don't think a show would last very long if it didn't evolve. Johnny Quest, of course, a 1964 animated science fiction adventure television series about a boy who accompanies his scientist father on wild adventures. It was crafted by comic book artist Doug Wildy at Hanna-Barbera after they asked him to create something akin to the popular radio drama at the time, Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy. (laughs) Using uh, magazines like Popular Science and Science Digest, he proposed a concept set 10 years in the future to have them going around and conceptualize near-future technology. And the team, which is parodied in the show, the team included Quest, aged 11, his sidekick, an Indian boy named Haji, which they hilariously parody because it's a bit like kind of a problematic character for sure. But no, it was awesome because he could do actual magic. <laughs> he would wave his hands around and go, Sim, Sim, Salabi. <laughs> oh, God. His scientist dad and their handsome bodyguard, secret agent, Race Bannon, which actually Brock mentions Bannon as a real character in the Venture Bros world. He it's- talks about. Yeah, he no, Rex, uh, Race Bannon is in the show. They yeah, yeah, like yeah. he shows up, he it's the same character, and it's only after like X amount of references that they had to actually be like, uh, never mind, it's uh, these are different characters. Whoops. So the idea was to see what would happen if that boy Johnny Quest was all grown up and took the helm his father held as the head of an action team and notorious globetrotting doctor. His sons, Hank and Dean, are based on the Hardy Boys, a mystery series for children and teens starring Frank and Joe Hardy, who are amateur detectives. Brock, of course, is the race Bannon, uh, and yet uh, he's also in the show. Johnny Quest is even introduced at one point in season two as Action Johnny, a homeless drug addict who deeply resents his father. However, he does eventually find a support group of former boy adventurers, and therein lies the key. It's like, let's take this thing, let's do a spoof of it, and let's really drill home a lot of childhood trauma and a lot of passing down of trauma through the years. Uh, and, And that is what we get this amazing character development. So it starts as a spoof, turns into a show about characters and about character development. And so the Dr. Venture character, that is where they just really super explore this trauma. Public said, it's hard for me to toot my own horn, but I do think we were doing that before other people were, certainly for comedy or animation. 
but it was kind of natural. Artists and comedians are all traumatized, and we're making animation. We're obviously all stuck in our own damn childhoods and trying to make sense of them. We're all in a time loop. Life is Groundhog Day, except maybe on a five-year cycle, and maybe each time you get a little better at dealing with your crap. Or you get one level deeper in understanding how you work, and what maybe needs fixing. He also talks about how, as the show goes on, they've both grown up quite a bit. They've both gotten therapy. They both worked on a lot of things. And you see that in the show. I think early on, you know, as Public says, uh, actually, I have a great quote for it. That's how you make comedy when you're younger. I so agree with this quote. This is Murder Fist. Uh, you make everything suck and you make everything get chaotic and nasty and subversive. Now I just think about the characters. The root of, to writing about failure is more hopeful somehow, and it's more based in real life. They also realized, according to Public, that they, quote, could actually be a little emotional without having to be I ironic or jokey about it on purpose. Again, so true for early comedy versus older, more mature comedy. Certainly early on, we would wrap things up with a fake morality lesson or have Dean have a sentimental moment about something. And even with the music, we would do a kind of very special Brady Bunch cue to say, well, we know we're being a bit mawkish here or whatever. Now we can actually do it. Season three is when I thought we really opened up the most, when we allowed ourselves to bring some actual emotions in, because they were there, because we were maybe too young and embarrassed about ourselves to be earnest. And you do see that evolution, for sure. Mixed with that is a great attention to detail in the world and a great attention to continuity and world building. Jake. I mean, the, the fact is, if they mention any character in any throwaway line you will see them eventually. It is upsetting how when you watch the show chronologically, like some throwaway line like, hey, you work with General Treister, Traster, like uh, I owe you one for that. And then like a season and a half later, the character will actually show up. Like nobody gets left behind, um, almost to the detriment of the show, which uh, kind of led them to do a big kind of half reboot in season six and seven. Yeah. But everything, the, the layers of cause and effect, and this kind of, supposedly this is where Doc Hammer's kind of influence kind of comes in. He's the one who kind of gets obsessed of the history and lore and interconnections between the characters, more so than McCullough, uh, is where things get crazy. Everyone is kind of related to each other. Everyone has dark secrets. Everyone slept with each other everyone's like dads all hung out in the same room at a, on a special night in 1927. And to the point where like, it just will not let up. It's kind of one of those amazing, it's again, it's uh, I kind of compare it to game of Thrones where you have like all these factions and all these old beefs and all these conflicting uh, motivations and subtle plays against each other, usually culminating in a giant, uh, climactic battle which must have been horrible to animate but uh they managed to pull it off uh but instead of you know from a single creator then being adapted by a writing staff it's these two guys just kind of handing the baton back and forth and working together and building this uh this expansive yet oddly intimate and personal universe together yeah yeah and i guess that's why they're able to do it so well is because it's just the two of them but they were definitely just kill it when it comes to that sort of that sense of unifying of the world, of never letting anything fall to the wayside. 
I have a great quote from Doc Hammer about this in terms of comparing themselves to the other shows of the time, like Harvey Birdman and C-Lab. He said, we were leaning toward that, but Venture Bros was even weirder because we said, let's make this world rock solid and very deep and very long and have just an abundance of information. Let's have the jokes come from everywhere. And the speed of the show is hard to keep up with. You have to watch it twice. There's so much going on that I can't believe we were able to wedge it into 24 minutes. Let's make this smart, rich, and meaningful and hope that other people have our sensibility and eventually get it. And we were even talking about this when we were watching episodes together about how much happens in a single episode. Oh, Just dear God. Wall to wall references, plot points, character developments. It, it, you, by the end of an episode, you're like, wait, wait, how did this start? Holy shit. We, we made it from point A to point fucking triple Z. Like, it's insane. So much happens in an episode that, like, uh, several times in the series uh, run, uh, in the finale of, I think, season four, Operation Prom, and uh, one other episode, they actually had to speed up the dialogue to fit everything in the r- amount of time and then down uh, pitch it so that it sounded more normal. Like, they literally would write so much that they had to, like, physically speed up the the footage to, like, get it all in. And a good example of them looking back at earlier episodes and incorporating these into major plot points is uh, definitely in in episode one of season seven, they heavily reference season one, episode two, and specifically a nod to the Burt Reynolds movie, Sharky's Machine, and the whole movie night thing, which we won't spoil here, but it's, like, amazing. Public said, it's a weird one, but we made the mistake of making that reference 14 years ago in the second episode, and now we've got to stick with it. Now I have to make something of it. (laughs) So, you know, just any odd character they will uh, hate bit was just a background villain in a shot in in a way earlier episode. And they were like, all right, well, now I have to give it a name and bring it back in. Uh, another example of this is when they do something visually and then they go in and explain it later. They did this with the character Billy Quizboy, who has an eye patch and a metal hand, which started out as just an eye catching design choice. And later they have to fully explain it in the episode The Invisible Hand of Fate in season three. This is very, very dedicated to building out their world and to like let no silly choice go unexplained eventually, um, which I love. Can this be Jake uh, Wet Blanket Corner? I love it. Give it. Hit me with it. It's a little bit. It's weird. I watched a couple of episodes uh, with my uh, partner and it was uh, weird watching Oh, now with like the eagle eyed, uh, you know, lens of the 21st century, because these are two dudes, two Gen Xers joking around with each other. And it's very hard to like have to be like, no, you don't understand when that character said that that was gay and retarded. Uh, <laughs> what they meant was um, it was 2004. Please stop being mad. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of dated stuff. Tons. Uh, I mean, sure. if you're very sensitive to trans issues, the character of Hunter Gathers is just who boy. Um, <laughs> but like, again, I see it as just like uh, these. Yeah, these are two Gen X dudes just joking around with each other. And that's how me and my friends in 2003 used to joke around. It still feels familiar. It still feels like, you know, almost nostalgic in a horrible way. Uh, and like it's and so in a way, it's not for everyone. If you are a like pristine Gen Zer who is like attuned to the justice of the world, you, you know, you might hear our breathless exaltations and be like, 
I don't get it. They just made titty jokes for half an hour. I didn't like it. And we'd have to be like, no, you don't understand. They made a lot of 70s references. (laughs) And that's Jake. He's a wet blanket. That's Jake. And he's not going to take it. He doesn't trust foreigners. And that's Jake's wet blanket corner. Stop having fun a little bit. Um, so yeah, we already talked about how failure is a theme, though I will say there are some good quotes about this, you know, yeah, failure, that's what Venture Brothers is all about, beautiful sublime failures, said Hammer at one point, um, Public also said the show is actually all about failure, even in the design, everything is supposed to be kind of the death of the Space Age dream world, the death of the Jet Age promises, all of these sorts of things, I will say though, they also have walked that back too, and said, we eventually wanted to move past that, I think that's especially why they do the retcon, essentially, or they even call it a jumping of the shark at the end of season five, beginning of season six. And actually they give them the Roseanne treatment as they refer to it. Cause I think they did want to explore other avenues uh, for sure. Well, oh, not to get too super meta, but like the way that the series resolves and the way that the series evolves is like you said, the, the, the stench of failure, the idea that like every generation is letting down this golden ideal, this promise they were given And as the series gets into the past, gets into the lore, gets into kind of all the ways our characters have been hurt and are connected to each other, true growth, you know, kind of after you go to therapy, is when you realize that the people you think you're disappointing were also giant disappointments themselves, and Mm -hmm. nobody is perfect, and you're just kind of getting by, and do everyone's getting by, doing their best, and, you know, don't live your life in fear that you've let down someone who was probably also a giant selfish shithead too. Yeah, for sure. And I, it definitely is a central theme, but I do like how it evolves into exactly more of like, Oh, actually we all just need therapy, <laughs> which is good. Uh, in terms of art style, Jackson Public's style is described by him as a, quote, natural, slick, angular cartooning style that is mostly simple. And then here and there you get into some neat little brush details. Publix also said, I picked shapes for the main characters that don't adhere to my own style principles. That's why a lot of times our supporting characters are more stylized than our main characters. And Public also said, I was elongating everything. I wanted that to be the style of the buildings and the cars and stuff. Everything's a little longer. Everything's a little more stretched, which I definitely get a sense of for sure. And they also do a really good job. Backgrounds changed. I think season one, the backgrounds were like really kind of barren. And then slowly but surely, they became these very painterly, beautiful, like lush backgrounds for all of the different locales. As they eventually also themselves just started working out exactly what the base looks like exactly you know exactly how it's laid out in blueprints and definitely the art evolves as well as uh, along with the emotional maturity they were based out of new york uh the literal the name of their production company was astro base go based on the name of the studio that doc hammer had given jackson public a uh you know that spare writing desk back in the day um but they were working with a lot of like Basically, they were relying on their friends in the animation industry to kind of help them out and do gigs for them for storyboarding and layout and design in between their other more profitable gigs because they were based on New York and a lot of this production work was done in L.A. So actually having access to that talent kind of as their budget grew uh, was another big, important thing. Uh, Having the ability to send things to Korean studios helped them save money, but, you know, Fixing animation errors was a giant problem because they didn't have the kind of staff to 
give the studios all these art assets that are needed for that kind of really slick, consistent look that you now associate with a modern cartoon. In fact, uh, around season, I think it's season six, uh, they finally got to work with uh, Titmouse, yes. which is an insanely accomplished animation company. Uh, they did stuff like Death Clock. They do all, they're basically one of now the premier American animation houses. And so that was a huge boon for them. Season five, actually, but yes. Yeah. Uh, McCullough says that, like, they lured out the company to open a New York office by saying, like, if you come here, you'll get uh, Venture Brothers and Super Jail. We need people yeah, in New yeah. York to actually get this work done. Um, talk briefly about the voice cast before I want to get a little deeper into the actual run of the series. What voice it cast? Does, it's just those two guys. It's just those two guys. Uh, uh, Patrick Warburton. But yeah, it, it really is. A lot of this comes from Christopher McCullough just wanting to voice characters when he was working on The Tick and the casting department would never let him. <laughs> he, so he does a ton of the voice work for his own show, including Hank Venture, Sergeant Hatred, The Monarch, and Henchman 24, to name just a few. And yeah, it was all just because like he kept like voicing his own characters in the pitch room, in the writer's room. And then he'd be like, but actually, let me do it. And the tech people were like, no, we're actually just going to get voice actors for it. Doc Hammer also voices a ton of characters. Uh, Dermot Fichtel, William Whalen, a.k.a. Master Billy Quizboy, and Dr. Girlfriend, which is one of my favorite characters in the show. But uh, yeah, you also do have Patrick Warburton. He is the voice of Brock Sampson. I love him so much. He was raised in a very religious and conservative Catholic home. His mother, though, was an actress. He dropped out of college to pursue modeling and acting. And what put him on the map in the 90s was David Putty as on Seinfeld as the reoccurring boyfriend of Elaine. The devils! The devils! I love him so much in Seinfeld. Imagine Patrick Warburton, the model. I know! <laughs> So funny. What a fucking world. That's so funny. I, I just, I absolutely love him and so much of the stuff that he does, including The Tick. But either way, you also do have James Urban, Urbaniak. He voices Dr. Thaddeus Rusty Venture. He is also known for playing R. Crumb in the movie American Splendor. Uh, public knew he wanted Urbaniak after seeing him do experimental comedy at New York City's The Knitting Factory. Oh, interesting. Michael Sinterniklas. Uh, uh, Voices Dean Venture. He was first known for voicing Leonardo in the 2003 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle animated series. He's done also a ton of anime dubs, like a ludicrous list of anim anime dubs. And there are also some really great celebrity cameo voices to point out, such as Kate McKinnon as Nikki Fichtel, Dermot's mother, who he has sex with, <laughs> Bill Hader as Headshot, as well as Dr. Phineas Fage, who was also voiced by James Adomian in later seasons. Shout outs to James. John Hodgman as Sikron from the supervillain group, The Investors. Uh, Stephen Colbert as Professor Richard Impossible oh in seasons God. one and two. I side Sidetrack, sidetrack. Sure. It was, I mean, the show was good. I was like, oh, good for that, those cartoon teams. You know, good for those comics guys to get a thing on uh, Cartoon Network. Good for them. Okay, whatever. And yeah, it's a uh, dirty Johnny Quest parody. Like, I get it. It really wasn't until... Uh, they introduced uh, Professor Impossible that all of a sudden I was like, oh, fuck. Like, they, these people, like, it's the mishmash of references actually, like, got me in a way that I had, I hadn't, it's Ice Station Impossible, where they basically do this version, this fucked up version of the Fantastic Four, where, you know, uh, the thing is just this, like, calloused over giant, the human torches just constantly in pain. 
And like a really good breakdown of just how sexist the old uh, Reed Richards Invisible Woman d- dynamic was. Where like if you read those original Stan Lee Kirby comics, they are just dumping on Sue Storm all the time, <laughs> and having Stephen Colbert as this like aloof, gaslighting, controlling like kind of just shithead of a husband at the helm of this fucked up family was like the perfect postmodern like breakdown of the fantastic four it really was like a great episode and kind of like and it was fucked up in a way that like felt more deep than just like ha 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 like this asian dude loves masturbating no i think that's a great example of of the show at it at its when it's at its best for sure it's a wrapping up of all of those different elements into one perfect little bow pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Yeah. You also have Paul F. Tompkins as the Blue Morpho, Patton Oswalt as Wonder Boy, and H. John Benjamin as the Master, just to name a few of the, the cameos that get piled on as the years have gone on, for sure. Um, so I do want to talk a bit about pr- uh, process. In order to do that, we do have to take a walk back to season one. Season one, the only note they got from the pilot from the network was, how cheap can you make it? Noodle Soup sent over a super low budget, much lower than the pilot, to entice them. They couldn't make it in Flash and instead shipped it off, uh, shipped off a storyboard to Korea. And actually, McCullough talks about how that was actually helpful for them to be like, yeah, 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 just send it over to there. So it helped them not micromanage the project and focus more on everything as a whole. Doc Hammer said... Because of the fucking production schedule, we just immediately had to trust each other that we could develop this show simultaneously and almost separately. He would write an episode with almost no discussion with me, and I would write an episode with almost no discussion with him. All of these characters started falling in place because we were putting in all the things that we loved. So by the end of the first season, we had separately invented what I think people call the Venture Bros. They referred to this process, by the way, as the jackhammer approach, of course, taking Doc Hammer and Jackson public. But either way, I think it actually does speak towards like it was like such a run and gun. It was like you just bang one out and I'll bang one out and hopefully it'll be on the same general thought thought line. Public said when we wrote season one, we really didn't write it like a first season. We wrote it like a second or third season. And again, I think what people loved about it was we were already in this world. There was already a deep history that was being unraveled for us. 
But um, yeah, that that was that was essentially that season one just banged it out. And then there was actually a weird long wait for season two to happen, which they actually are kind of thankful for in hindsight. It let them process what they were going to do going into season two. It also allowed for the first season and the show as a whole to gain a fandom because they ran the series a couple of times on Adult Swim. Uh, and they even got to the point where they thought it was not going to happen. And so, uh, like, Doc Hammer went back to, like, being in a band and, like, painting, and he got super focused on that. Like, they all were resol- resolved for nothing else. And Adult Swim got back to him and said, yes, let's get a season two, but we really want you to develop the character of the boys more. Because at that point, they felt they were just pretty much the same person. There's only so many times you can see someone get hacked to pieces by a Bowie knife. And then have two bright-eyed boys go, golly! (laughs) It was also season two, they wanted to just go super deep on the nerd references. And this is that quote I alluded to earlier. Public said, this was 2004, so there hadn't yet been the nerd overtake of popular culture. We must have been part of the same cultural zeitgeist where nerds were on the rise. And we were just trusting our instincts. When you talk directly to people like that, they feel special. They feel rewarded. And they feel part of a secret club or something. That's been a key to our cult hipdom. I mean, there's it, it. I will say, like it. If you again, uh, if you watch it now with like completely virgin eyes, uh, you'll see like an episode where like the joke is, "Get it? The monarch has Hulk hands. Remember Hulk hands?" <laughs> and you'd be like, "Okay, more nerd shit." But at the time, it was kind of amazing to be like. Whoa, what the fuck? Is the monarch wearing Hulk hands? Like, are the people who make this are on the same dumb websites I go to? This is amazing. <laughs> and then they also go to the toy aisle of Walmart at two in the morning, super baked out of their minds and play yes. with the Hulk hands. Uh, yeah. Uh, for season three, and I agree with this, they really wanted to open the whole thing up and really make it about the characters' lives, which meant a decent amount of flashbacks to delve into past events that lead to current motivations and trauma. And uh, they also, at this point, for season three, they're really getting getting on a roll because they got a two-season order. So they also have this big confidence that they are really working on something here, and they're in it for the long haul now. It's not just something that may or may not happen. Uh, this is also the season they'd make the jump to HD, and this uh, let them. This allowed them to redo a ton of the backgrounds, really, really work out how everything's laid out, and and again, just blow the whole thing open. And that's great for season three, but then things get a little rough in season four. That sees the guys dealing with fatigue and stress and everything finally starting to just crumble down around them. If you recall, season four happens in two parts, two eight episode sections. And that actually came about because they had to go to like McCullough talks about Jackson Public talks about like going to Adult Swim and they could see how bleary eyed he was as he begged them to let him take a break halfway through the season because they were so fucking just ripped apart by the work schedule that they were committed to. Because you have to understand, they're directing, executive producing, they're doing the voices, they're doing the writing, they're going over the storyboards, they're going over the footage, they're editing cuts, they're doing all of this work. And they're putting together even the fucking DVD extras that they're contractually obligated to put together. And they actually have to write, and they their plan was, oh, we'll just do the actual writing on, like, nights and weekends. That'll be easy. We won't be exhausted from these other intense full-time responsibilities we've undertaken. We'll do the emotional core of the show and the off hours. It'll be fine. <laughs> Only to have it just completely destroy Jackson. Yeah, they, and I think they even talk about, this is before Titmouse came in in season five. 
They also lucked out, they said, because there was this new animation studio that opened up in New York, which at first sucked for them as it took away all the artists and stuff. But then that studio ends up collapsing and they're like, oh, shit, awesome. Everybody's hired (laughs) and just brought all those people running from that studio directly over to them. I didn't have time to look it up, but like I was in New York and I was an animation nerd at the time. And I don't know which studio they're talking about. If you know what it is, uh, hit me up on Twitter at Best Jake Young. Yeah, they definitely didn't specify which one it was, probably for specific reasons. But either way, season five is a big return for them in terms of the dedication of the show, the love for the show. This is sparked by writing the episode, a very highly regarded episode in the series, Operation Prom. Hammer said, I didn't know what happened. We just fell in love again. It was definitely a high. We just put this thing back together again and got really excited about all of the things that they can do. They also brought the show. Uh, this is, uh, we already mentioned Titmouse. Public said, I wanted to write episodes where the plots had more of the spirit of seasons one and two, but with the maturity, character, character development, and tricks that we had learned over the course of the other seasons, but still get it back to these bigger action pieces and these kind of more uh, adventurous episodes that spoofed that Johnny Quest style and pull it all together. And they also, as we mentioned before, they end season five in a way that releases them from the bonds of story stuff to that point that they'd been dealing with. They essentially just wanted to stop making it about the dilapidated base and they wanted to make it stop making it about Doc as failure. Essentially, I mean, you know what I mean? It's so much kind of the thing that made season three and four, uh, three, four and five, like so amazing. The fact that, you know, we got into the history of all these seemingly innocuous side characters, the uh, power plays happening between the Revenge Society and the Guild of Calamitous Intent and OSI and Sphinx and all of these like all these different these different factions, each staffed with their own cadre of unique characters all kind of bouncing off one another, all coming together in these explosive showdowns and then kind of going back into their separate ways and then coming back together. It like, it gave it so much depth and so much intensity. So like when you, when you watch it all, it feels so much larger than this kind of weird side project that Adult Swim just kind of gave a couple hundred thousand dollars to. (laughs) It really, yeah, I think they kind of went as far as they could with that concept and the uh, reboot in season five, which kind of brought on by, what was it? Um, Gargantua 2. What's the name of that episode? Uh, the special, I believe it is Gar- Gargantua 2, the special. All this and Gargantua 2. Like, it really serves as a great send off. And uh, Operation Prom serves as a great send off. Mm-hmm. Like, all these, the series kind of hits all these satisfying crescendos, which again elevates it so much more than just. An Aqua Teen Hunger Force or a Squid Billies. Yeah. yeah. God damn. God damn. I'm like jealous. I'm jealous they made this. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So now for season six, Hammer even said he wanted to quote, thought about it as quote, making season six a season one. They're in NYC. They have money again. They're they're You know, I mean, it's not. I mean, they don't they don't just make it all happy bells and whistles. I mean, there's still the trauma. There's still all these elements. But again, just more of a focus on. Just just character on on, you know, building out, the, you know, what the characters would do as opposed to like how shitty of a position can we put the characters in essentially is more, I think, the direction they were trying to go in. And also, though, they're having issues uh, starting to have issues with the network. 
just having communication issues leading to delays about how everything would air, about how the special would air. It seems to be like they're they were kind of hit a stride in season five and then they're having back in they're, they're having some troubles again in season six. And uh, of course, they go and do a season seven still working in that world with a proposed season eight. Uh, before we talk about the cancellation, things like that and uh, anything else Jake wants to add. We did skip over the title sequence, and I definitely want to chat about it because I do feel like they nailed it in terms of the vibe of the show, in terms of getting you hyped to watch the show. Public wanted the opening to be very branded and iconic, much like the James Bond openings. They drew inspiration from Saul Bass, who had a, quote, very stark, fairly clunky kind of graphic approach. And you can see that in his movie posters for The Shining is a really good example of one you've probably seen before that has this vibe to it, this Definitely a very like 70s vibe to it as well. It puts you in to that retro uh, headspace. Public wanted also, quote, somewhere between Saul Bass and a 60s silk screeny blown out Warhol and did wash drawings of the characters with scan ins of things like a picture of a Mayan artifact for a background. They really just tried a lot of things. Also, you'll notice if you, you, you'll actually can go back and look for this every character in the title every like moving character and all this kind of stuff is specifically pulled from that pilot episode and then they just like colored it in weird different ways and stripped out you know different things and so you could actually see every single different little clip in that opening in the pilot as well oh also the opening theme is done by jg thurwell an australian musician known for his musical styling mashups i believe that was a doc hammer connection since he was a musician himself um i think one of the things that uh we're really uh kind of glossing over is just how like you know just how fucked up a lot of the humor can be Mm -hmm. uh in this show i don't mean like i I don't want to say like and it's in a way that like is that like more than just edgy like more than just like 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 they'll introduce a character like uh you know general hatred major hatred captain hatred and you know they'll just like be like oh he's a recovering pedophile and he can't legally hug the boys and he's their bodyguard and they'll be like and in any other show like they'd be like that's the joke but instead they'll actually go into like his psychology and his struggles and his like need for redemption uh you know uh the monarch and Dr. Mrs. The Girlfriend are like confirmed swingers and like their weird, like kind of sexual politics and the way they're, you know, how uh, Dr. Girlfriend like is deeply in love with the monarch, but like has to baby him because he's this like weird, broken man. The ways that they kind of, uh, you know, even just the way henching, arching, yeah. the psychosexual dynamics of these supervillain superhero relationships. I love the oh, the uh, the over the top violence. Uh, I that's why Brock is my favorite character because he's so intense and the way he just destroys people <laughs> is so funny to me. And I just can't get enough of it. And just the way he'll just be like smashing a dude's head into a wall like <laughs> over and over again, and and it's so ridiculous and over the top. And he'll be loving every second of it because when you because like you know again taking the archetype of the you know man of action and revealing the truth is that anybody who's that keen on violence is also fucked in the head yeah it's like a psychopath oh god so many uh is it the pilot where he has to piss on the mummy's corpse it's great (laughs) there's so many great episodes that i love from this series um 
part two, like the mummy part two is great. It's like a part two of an episode that never has a part one. That is super funny. Orb is a great one. Uh, we mentioned, yeah, Gargantua 2 and Prom, but those are almost like payoff episodes more so than uh, like kind of just easy peasy ones you can just pick up at any time. Uh, fuck. The evolution of Henchman 24 from like this like weaselly nerd to like mourning friend to kind of like of the people in this show, the most self-actualized in his own weird way where he kind of owns who he is and like kind of arises to the occasion and kind of comes to terms with himself. Like, there's so much shit. Uh, we, I mean, we, we watched together rapacity in blue, which has the God gas and, and the hand and the mouse <laughs> in the mouse cage or turns them all into like religious fanatics. That was an incredible episode. Also where they play with that, um, Dr. Venture, uh, or not Dr. Venture with, um, Monarch's blue morpho, Storyline where they do the whole uh, Green Hornet parody stuff. I mean, that is a killer episode for sure. Pinstripes and Poltergeists from season four is uh, one that I really enjoyed. It has um, kind of this like uh, it's part of it's part of uh, Henchman 24's journey as he's like kind of haunted by the ghost of his friend. It has a lot of uh, good Brock moments and just like a lot of good like kind of world building as different characters and different allegiances kind of come together. I would also throw it out for uh, season two, episode one powerless in the face of death, which explains the whole cloning plot device with the boys. Oh my and God. It's so funny. And they're like skinless, like, <laughs> like pre human states. It's uh, so funny. Another holy shit moment is that montage where they go into all the ways the boys have died. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. Amazing stuff. Just great shit, man. Definitely check it out. It's definitely the kind of show, too, that even though it might be quite problematic uh, in its early days, you definitely kind of want to start from the beginning because of all the references and callbacks and world building that they do. But you really can jump in any season as well if you want to just get a quick look at how things evolve. But you may be a little lost because, man, they really do tie it all together in brilliant, brilliant ways. It definitely pays off more as bulk than as a sitcom-like experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's if you, at the very least, if you watch this premiere episodes and the finale episodes, you'll at least get a clue as to the um, status quo that each season operates in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you sh- you kind of almost have to go chronologically. You kind of have to go on the same journey that the creators went on. But much, 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 much faster. Yeah, absolutely. It's all canon. (laughs) So uh, after the conclusion of season seven in October 2018, the series was announced to be renewed for an eighth and final season. However, on September 7th of 2020, public announced the show was canceled with no season eight, which had a partially written script at the time. Of course, we talked about in the Adult Swim episode, but there's a big changing of the guard happening over there. A lot of things are being shut down and canceled and whatever. We'll see what happens with Adult Swim in the coming years. It's going to be a major transition for them. I hope it works out. And I hope that Venture Bros gets that finale, that final film. I, I really, I would be shocked to to think that in within the next five to ten years, we don't get some kind of conclusion arc for the whole show, just because of the love that people have for the show, the amount of streaming services that are thirsty to be able to uh, be the ones that save Venture Bros, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Adult Swim stated on Twitter that, quote, we also want more Venture Bros. 
and have been working with Jackson and Doc to find another way to continue the Venture Bros story. We'll see what happens. Um, I guess uh, uh, one last thing I want to touch on is just uh, because the show was so intimately produced, the relationship with its fans was also intimate. Like these guys showed up at cons and would do full Q&A panels. Uh, They would have blog posts all the time through various personal and studio-based social media campaigns. They had a few like really innovative uh, merchandise uh, uh, kind of ideas like the Shirt of the Week Club where – uh, as the shows were airing, if you subscribe to this uh, uh, club, you would get a T-shirt in the week having to do with that week's episode. Um, there was just a, uh, including one that I really want, which is a New York Greek style coffee cup that just says Spanakopita, <laughs> which, oh, fuck, I didn't mention how good of an episode Spanakopita is. Absolutely. Oh, oh, maybe watch that one first if you really have to. If you have to get one out of the blue. Spanakopita is as close to like a perfect bottle episode. It involves uh, uh, evil cyborg Elron Hubbard at one point. <laughs> All right. There you have it. I think that's our episode on Venture Bros. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that this is one that a lot of people have wanted, so I'm so glad we could finally do it. Uh, and yeah, if you want to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We've got weekly episodes, just five dollars a month for $15 a month you can join our Sunday study sessions that group is growing that group is super cool if you're not super chill and fun maybe don't do that layer because right now it is an awesome hang with this group of people we've got I really do appreciate it where we sit down and this past week we watched Venture Bros episodes you know whatever we're studying we just hang out and talk about it and check it out together for about an hour and a half every Sunday and it's lovely so there you go also twitch.tv forward slash holdnators ho pop on in Monday Tuesday Friday night streams we're doing lots of fun stuff dude the Among Us streams on Tuesday night are getting real crazy we got Jackie to join us for this last one I'm going to keep trying to get more LPN people to join for Among Us because boy does screaming at your friends uh, just make the time fly doesn't it? I mean, I join Holden, but as you know, I have a genetic disorder, which makes me incapable of lying. <laughs> Unbelievable. Except for that one lie I just told. It's very <laughs> weird. It's a very paradoxical genetic disorder. <laughs> um, all right. And that's all from me. Jake. I, you really got to check out this Whisperer Patreon, folks. It's it's you got <laughs> bonus episodes. We got all sorts of great things. It's all he has, folks. He's got nothing else to promote. Damn you. Uh, and if not, uh, go to my Twitter at uh, Best oh, yeah, Young to see all my thoughts and plops. And uh, until next time, Holden, never stop whizzing. And keep on ba 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 rusing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side.